If you're a regular Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 962 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to Benzi518 in Japan, who just gave us this five-star review. A fun and intellectually stimulating ride, and a must-listen for any sci-fi fan. Even when I know nothing about the guest, I find it makes great brain candy. Also, dear host, special thanks to your mom for recommending Scythe in episode 400. Those books are good. So big thanks again to Benzi518 for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 462 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Julia Galef, who you may remember from our panel on rationalism and science fiction back in episode 88. She's the host of the Rationally Speaking podcast and co-founder of the Center for Applied Rationality. And her 2016 TED Talk, Why You Think You're Right Even If You're Wrong, has been viewed over 4 million times. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new book, The Scout Mindset, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. I also just want to mention that there's a part in this interview where I can't remember the name of a movie. So that movie is Coherence, directed by James Ward Burkett. And you should all go check it out. It's great. And now here's our interview with Julia Galef. All right, so we're here with Julia Galef. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back, David. Okay, so your new book is called The Scout Mindset. Yes. So how did this book come about? Well, so I've been interested for many years now in the project of improving human reasoning and decision-making. And it just became increasingly clear to me over the last five years or so that the bottleneck for improving reasoning and decision-making isn't what I thought it had been. I had kind of thought that, you know, what we all really need is just more knowledge, like more knowledge of, of cognitive biases and logical fallacies. Um, and, and having that knowledge will improve our, our thinking. And what I ended up concluding is that the bottleneck isn't so much knowledge as it is motivation, um, the motivation to direct our intelligence and our knowledge uh, in the right direction, that is, in the direction of actually trying to see what's really true, trying to figure things out honestly, as opposed to the direction of uh, trying to justify what we already believe or justify what we want to be true. And so uh, the Scout Mindset is the result of that um, that new focus for me on uh, on the motivation to see things clearly. And could you just explain what is the title, the Scout Mindset? What is that? Yeah. Mean? So the Scout Mindset is my term for, as I say, the motivation to see things clearly, um, to see what's really there as opposed to seeing what you wish was there. And it's part of this framing metaphor of the book in which I, I talk about how we humans are often by default in what I call soldier mindset, in which our motivation is to defend our pre-existing beliefs or defend what we want to be true against any evidence that might threaten those beliefs. And I, I use that metaphor because, you know, the way we talk about reasoning is very militaristic. You know, we talk about defending our beliefs or or buttressing our positions or supporting our positions as if we were talking about, you know, a military position or, or even a fortress. And when we talk about uh, opposing arguments or, or evidence, we talk about shooting them down or poking holes in them. Um, and so, yeah, the soldier mindset is just my term for this this way of thinking, which you know, I'm sure people are already familiar with under different terms. You might have heard it called rationalizing or motivated reasoning or wishful thinking or denial. Um, these are all different facets of, of what I'm calling soldier mindset. And so scout mindset is an alternative to that, an alternative way of thinking, because the scout's role is not to go out and attack or defend. It's to go out and explore and see what's really there and try to form as accurate a map of the situation or the landscape as possible. So that's scout mindset. Yeah. So do you remember, like, was there a moment when you thought I'm going to write a book or how did that, how did the book itself come about? Uh, no, I don't think there was a particular moment. I mean, I, I have lots to say. <laughs> I'd been <laughs> saying it um, in, you know, talks whenever people would let me and, uh, and on Twitter and so on. And I, I just had some, publishers reaching out to me asking if I'd be interested in writing a book a few years ago. And so I jumped at the chance to, to, you know, have a bigger platform than I already had. 
That's interesting. So was it pretty straightforward then getting the book published? You didn't have to go through the whole 25 rejections, years of frustration kind of thing? Uh, no, uh, fortunately, it, uh, you know, the opportunity just presented itself. And I was like, I, I do have lots to say. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe I was luckier than the average author. I mean, it's interesting because uh, last year I interviewed Jonathan Kay. He wrote a book about conspiracy, the conspiracy theory mindset. And one editor uh-huh. told him, quote, debunking books don't sell. And oh, this is not quite a debunking book. That surprises book, me. Yeah, but you think yeah. that you, you never heard any anything about the um, market for skeptical books or anything like that? Uh, well, actually, the way I was, you know, my my pitch and what I think the book ended up being is is kind of different from a debunking or skeptical book. Uh, so I, not to criticize books about, you know, human irrationality, because I like a lot of them and have learned a lot from them, like, you know, predictably irrational or thinking fast and slow. But my book was was kind of intended to be using those books as a jumping off point and saying, you know, yes, it's true that that we humans are irrational in a lot of ways. Lots of other people have written about, you know, soldier mindset, but I'm just interested in where do we go from there? Like, how do we actually make our thinking more objective and fair-minded and and truth-seeking? Um, and I think part of the answer is to focus on the flip side of the coin, because we're not always irrational. We're not always in soldier mindset. Sometimes some people are able to, you know, see things accurately, even when the truth isn't what they had hoped for, isn't convenient. Uh, sometimes we are able to be in scout mindset. And so I just wanted to write a book focusing on that side of the coin and asking what can we learn from our successes? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely, it's a very upbeat, cheerful tone to the book. Oh, good. <laughs> That's what I was going for. Yeah. Uh, although there is one part where you say, um, sometimes the project I'm working on seems hopeless. For example, just to pull a random hypothetical situation out of thin air, the book I'm writing seems terrible and I should give up. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not going to deny I have those moments uh, frequently. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's just a normal part of writing a book or was this a challenging book? I hope so. (laughs) I hope that's normal. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted the book to be so many different things. So I felt, it felt like there were a lot of constraints that I, that were on me or that I had put on myself. So, you know, I wanted it to be, uh, you know, intelligent and have insightful points that are non-obvious, but I also wanted it to be um, just really accessible to people who aren't already like reading and thinking about this stuff 24-7 like I am or my friends are. Uh, and I wanted it to be you know, inspiring, but not cheesy. And I wanted it to be um, you know, rigorous in the sense that I'm not making claims that I can't support. But uh, I also... I also didn't really feel like I could rely on a lot of the empirical research out there because, uh, as I kind of mentioned in the book, a lot of the studies relating to soldier mindset or scout mindset are are actually not very good. And so that was also a challenge is how do I write kind of a well-supported book without relying on research that I don't really trust? And so, I don't know, that's just, that's like a fraction of the constraints that I felt like I was laboring under. And so I I, I did often get discouraged, but, um, but hopefully the end product is something that, uh, that hits enough of those points that uh, that I can be proud of it. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about the social science research. And you say it, it's interesting because you say that you started out, um, you know, collecting all these studies that kind of supported your thesis. And then you yeah. came across ones that um, contradicted your thesis. And you're like, oh, these are so this is nonsense, you know. And then that right. prompted you to go back and look at the ones that supported your thesis. And you're like, oh, these are kind of all nonsense, too. Right, exactly. I was trying to... I wanted to make sure I was applying the same the same standard of rigor um, on the studies that supported my view as I was applying to the studies that didn't support my view. Yeah, it just I mean, I'm not uh, I don't read a lot of social science, but the my impression is that just a lot of it is just really, really bad. I mean, I yeah, in obvious what you know, in ways that are even obvious to an outside to a non-specialist. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I interviewed this guy, Chris Ferguson. He wrote a book called Moral Combat about how. Um, violent video games. There's really no evidence that they're um, that they have any negative impacts, and the studies supporting the idea that they do is like, well, we know that they make people more violent because we did it. We called people in and they, we had them play a violent video game for ten minutes, and then they were like one percent more likely to like, last their uh, partner with a unpleasant noise or something. I know, and it's like. like- 
Yeah. And, and like even setting aside any questions about are they using the right statistical methodology? Are they p-hacking or whatever? Just looking at the what they actually did, it the idea that you would generalize from that to playing video games makes people more violent in general is such a leap, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I, I feel for you. Uh, yeah. To write a book in this, in this space. Yeah. I mean, where I landed is just, I don't actually think we need studies to, um, let me rephrase that. The reason that I believe- <laughs> We don't need scout- studies. Screw them. Well, <laughs> no, to, to be clear, um, studies are great uh, if they're well done, but I don't actually think we need studies to recognize that, you know, sometimes we are more truth-seeking than other times, and there are some ways of pushing yourself into a more scout-like, a more truth-seeking mode that often work for many people, just anecdotally. Um, and so, you know, it'd be nice to have studies telling us uh, exactly what the magnitude of the effect is and exactly which people these studies work for in a r- rigorous way. But I don't think we have those studies. And so, you know, that's too bad. But I think it's still valuable to point out, like, anecdotally, a lot of people seem to use these techniques and find them helpful. Um, and, you know, here are some examples. W- one of the things I do in the book is I uh, I kind of address some common beliefs that I think are wrong about scout mindset, like the the idea that you can't express uncertainty and still be taken seriously as a leader or an expert. Um, and so, you know, just pointing out a bunch of counterexamples to that common wisdom, like the fact that Jeff Bezos talked very frankly about uncertainty when he was founding Amazon, I think just pointing out counterexamples is, you know, a valuable update in itself, even if we don't have studies uh, or if we don't have a lot of really well done studies on the relationship between how you talk about uncertainty and people's trust in you. So point being is I think there's a, there's like a lot of value that, that you can get out of just, you know, looking at the evidence that we have, even if it's not as good as we would like. Yeah. I, I thought the stuff in the book about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk was so interesting because you make this point that, you know, a lot of sort of self-help business type books is like in order to be successful, you have to be confident. And so if anyone right. says, can you do this? You say, absolutely. Rawr, I got it. You know, right. <laughs> and, and, and you make <laughs> nice this dramatization that, there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I listen to the audiobooks and that's what they're right. like. You know? <laughs> um, but, um, but that you make this point that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk were both like, there's a 70% chance this isn't going to work. There's a 90% chance this isn't going to work. Exactly. And people still were inspired by them and found them confident. Right. Uh, yeah, and you know, I think that's it's interesting with Elon Musk in particular, uh, as as you say, he he's very, been very clear from the beginning that he thought there was probably a ninety percent chance that both or, or that each of Tesla and SpaceX was going to fail, and he just did it anyway because he felt like, well, the the upside or the value of success if it does happen is so large that it's still worth trying, um, and you know, the 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 chance of failure is still tolerable um, if I do fail, and so he felt like. On balance, you know, the expected value of these ventures is is positive enough that it's it's. I feel motivated to do them, um, and so even that way of thinking about uh, about motivation is kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people because a lot of people feel like the only way you can be motivated to do something is if you're confident for sure it's going to succeed. And so I think Elon Musk's thinking about his risky ventures is kind of a nice. Uh, a nice alternative where you can be motivated without having to deceive yourself into believing there's a hundred percent chance of success where, you know, you can't honestly be that confident. Well, right. But you also, you draw this distinction between epistemic confidence and social confidence. Yes. And yeah. that, that actually what makes people follow you isn't necessarily that you're promising success, but just like pretty, like kind of superficial, almost things just like, do you seem nervous? You know, do you seem, right. uh, vacillating or or something and if and if you just seem you know sort of self-possessed and calm even if you're saying this is probably not going to work people find you find that confidence uh reassuring right that's right yeah what i was saying about elon musk a minute ago is that that's addressing one of the common hesitations people have about being in scout mindset which is that it's going to sap your motivation that you can't be motivated to do things if you admit to yourself that they might fail and so that's i think elon musk's reasoning is a nice counterexample to that um, but then there's this other hesitation that people have that's related, which is that, well, I will seem unconfident if I, if I, you know, talk, if I admit when I'm talking about my projects or my ideas that they might not work or that they might be wrong. 
Um, I can't do that and still be inspiring and influential. And so uh, the story of Jeff Bezos is, I think, um, well, both of them are a nice counterexample to that. But Jeff Bezos in particular is a, a striking story because he, you know, when he was starting Amazon, he not only believed internally that there was only about a 30% chance of success, but he said as much to all of his early investors. He said, you know, I think there's about a 70% chance you're going to lose all your money. So <laughs> don't don't invest anything you're not willing to lose. And and he said similar things to the media as well. You know, he would say, like, I can't guarantee that Amazon's going to succeed. What we're doing is very complicated. Um, and yet, in spite of all that, clearly he was very, you know, inspiring and persuasive. He got a lot of people to invest in him and work for him and cover Amazon. And uh, by explanation for what's going on there is that there are, we tend to conflate two different kinds of confidence or two different things that we mean by the word confidence. Um, and one of them is I call epistemic confidence. And that's that, that's about how much certainty you have in your beliefs. Like, are you 100% certain your company is going to succeed or are, are you only 30% certain? Um, and if you're being a good scout, you, you're not going to be 100% certain in everything because you just can't, that's not really justifiable. <laughs> um, but then the other kind of confidence is what I call social confidence. And that's just about how self-assured you are. Like, do you have good posture? Do you speak in a confident tone of voice? And just how do you act? Like, do you do you go out and take charge and make things happen? Are you comfortable speaking in front of groups, you know, and um, putting your ideas out there? And uh, what I learned from both looking at uh, the few academic studies that I actually thought were decent, <laughs> and then also <laughs> looking at real-life case studies like Bezos, is that social confidence is what matters for winning people over and getting them to look up to you and follow you. Um, and so even though Jeff Bezos was uh, expressing relatively low epistemic confidence in Amazon's success, or at least low compared to how other founders talk about their companies, uh, he, he had tons of social confidence. He, you know, he spoke confidently. He, he was going out and taking charge and taking risks. And, you know, he was also very passionate about his vision for Amazon. If you listen to him talk about the early days of internet commerce and his vision for what, what was possible, he, he speaks with so much just excitement and drive. Um, and that's despite the fact that he's saying, you know, this isn't a sure thing, but, uh, but here's my vision for what I'm trying to create. And so that, you know, that's what early investors point to when they talk about why they invested in him. They, they say they're aware it's not a sure bet, but they say, you know, he's clearly, he's just, he's so charismatic and he has so much energy and passion and, you know, he's really, he's done his homework. Uh, and so this is a risk worth taking. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about this. So there's there's a line where you say, more than once during my research for this book, I realized I had essentially wasted an interview because I spent it trying to convince my interviewee that my thesis was correct instead of trying to understand their point of view. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, are you just going to bring up all of the examples of my failings and foibles from the book, <laughs> one after the other? <laughs> yes, that's true. That like is, that's the thing I've done. <laughs> so we're just getting started. Oh, yay. <laughs> Um, but no, but it's, I mean, part of the reason it struck me is because that doesn't sound like you at all. I mean, I, you know, like I kind of know you a little bit and I've listened to your podcast a lot. And so I'm, I'm just kind of curious what, what, um, like, what did you feel motivated to, like, what sort of points got you to, you know, kind of get into that more combative Soldier for, mode? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, ironically, the, um, the one I was just talking about with, uh, with epistemic versus social confidence um, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of people in Silicon Valley uh, in, or in the Bay Area who are entrepreneurs or investors, just part of that world. And this this common wisdom that, no, you have to be uh, a successful entrepreneur, has to be 100% confident in himself and in his, in his project. Uh, that's what gives you the motivation to succeed. And that's what makes other people trust you. That's just a really common belief. And um, I you know, because it was, it seemed to be undermining my thesis. Uh, I, and you know, this is a topic I'm passionate about and I was writing this book. So I had, I'd kind of invested a fair amount of my identity in this, in this thesis. Um, I did kind of automatically go into arguing with them mode and trying to point out counterexamples and, which is just not that helpful. Like the whole point of the interviews was <laughs> to, to hear why they disagreed with me and, you know, if their experience contradicted what I was saying. Uh, and I ended up feeling like 
for the most part, their their views didn't contradict um, what I was saying. Um, but how to put this? Um, what I what I ended up thinking was happening in a lot of those cases was just that either people were conflating social and epistemic confidence, as I mentioned, or they were just they were using the word confidence in a or optimism in a different way than I was. Like, you know, they might say it's really important to be optimistic, and I would hear that and think um, they mean it's important to overestimate your chances of success. But in fact, what they, what it turned out they often meant was just it's important to focus on what you can fix instead of what you can't fix. Or it's important to, you know, try to keep a cheerful disposition instead of feeling despairing. All of which are things I agree with and that I don't think they actually contradict scout mindset. Um, but I, I didn't get to the point of figuring that out uh, until I got myself to kind of calm down and actually try to understand what they were saying instead of argue with them. Yeah. I mean, there's a part where you're talking about how sometimes if you're having a conversation with someone and it's really awkward, sometimes people will say, oh, this is awkward, huh? And uh-huh. <laughs> that, that you think that that just makes it way more awkward. And I, I do, agree with I you. do. But okay, actually, I think thank it, was the, you. <laughs> it was the majority of people, though, disagreed. I, I forget. Well, in um, one poll that I did on Facebook, yeah, the majority disagreed. Okay. I don't know how representative that is, but it still, it still shocked me that out of my Facebook <laughs> friends, the yeah. majority disagreed with me, with us. Yeah, yeah, right, right on. Um, but um, you you describe um, interacting with one of the respondents who says, uh, "Wait, you feel like it's your responsibility to make conversations go smoothly," and uh-huh. you say, "You say, wait, you don't, right?" And I'm totally with you there too. Like, so, so this person in, it, will be having an extremely awkward conversation and is just kind of like, "Yes, yeah, is not my problem." Uh-huh. Uh, I I don't really understand that, but neither do I. But yeah, I, t- I was telling that story in the book uh, as as part of an exploration of how you should react when the world like contradicts your expectations. Uh, and so my expectations in that case had been, well, of course, ev- doesn't I mean everyone knows that it's it makes things more awkward to point out awkwardness explicitly, and and I just kind of expecting to confirm that expectation. I did this poll on Facebook. Um, describing the situation that I had recently been in when I was in a conversation and someone, the person I was talking to said, well, this is kind of awkward, isn't it? And so I described the situation as neutrally as I could without, uh, without describing where I was in the situation and asked, you know, in your opinion, does calling attention to the awkwardness make things better or worse? Like, does it make things more or less awkward? And I was shocked that something like two thirds of the respondents said, oh, I think it's it makes things better to call out awkwardness explicitly. <laughs> and I was like, what? Uh, you're crazy. <laughs> um, but, you know, so one way to react to such a result would be to just get annoyed and dismiss it and say, well, you know, these people are crazy. But another way to react is just to get curious about, well, what's going on here? Why did they disagree with me? And so that's how I ended up having that conversation with the person you were quoting where we were trying to understand why we had such different intuitions about this social situation. And so one of the things that I learned was that he, we felt differently about it because he didn't feel the same pressure I did to make conversations go smoothly. And so it didn't, you know, calling out the awkwardness didn't feel to him like a, a, a challenge to his ability to make the conversation succeed. And anyway, I, I'm not claiming I still, I fully understand his psychology yet, but it at least, I don't know. I felt like it gave me some insight into how different people were perceiving these social situations and just gave me kind of the update in general that people's subjective experience of social dynamics is more different than I had thought. And that that was kind of a a useful update because now uh, when it seems like someone is behaving in a inconsiderate or rude um, or clueless way, I'm less likely to get annoyed and more likely to just assume probably they're perceiving the social situation differently from me and to be curious about why and how. Yeah. I really wonder with a lot of these things is, I mean, one of my big things is I always feel horrible if anyone that I'm talking to in a group is left out of the conversation and me I always too. make a huge effort to, you know, if someone has, hasn't talked for a while, I'll be like, Oh, what do you think about this? Or like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And it's, it's just obvious to me that most people don't think about that or don't yeah, care or, yeah. or whatever. Or they'll, a related thing that bugs me, since we're talking about social things that bug us, (laughs) uh, a related thing that bugs me is when someone's telling a story 
uh, or they're explaining something and they get interrupted, like either because someone in the group interrupts them or, I don't know, the waiter comes by at dinner to take someone's order or something. And then after the interruption is over, no one says, so as you were saying, you know, you were telling us about <laughs> such and such because it's so, it's so hard for the person who was interrupted to restart their story. Or at least it's hard for me when I'm that person. It feels too awkward to restart my story without anyone prompting me to. And so I'm so grateful to the people who are like, oh, so Julia, you were saying about such and such. And then I, I have my opening and I can restart my story. So yeah, but it, it seems like that's something that a lot of people don't, it, it doesn't occur to them to be a useful thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if people like us who who care a lot about that kind of stuff are more likely to end up as podcast hosts than, <laughs> than the other kind of person. It's possible. I mean, there's also I can see potential upsides to the other to, to the uh, you know less neurotic approach to social interactions <laughs> <laughs> or less mindful. I guess is another way to put it. You know, maybe it's just maybe it makes social interaction easier and less stressful if they're are so many fewer things they're concerned about. Um, and that, that that's a valuable thing in its own right, you know. That's interesting. I mean, while we're on the subject of things that bug us, I mean, you know, <laughs> a lot of times I'll interview, I'll interview people and say, you know, oh, so like, how'd you come up with the idea for this book? Yeah. And they'll talk for 20 minutes. And I'm kind of like, does this, per- like, is this person thinking like, I read their whole book, and really, I only wanted to ask three questions about it, and then have them give me three twenty-minute answers, and then that this, like, and that's the whole interview. I like, know. Do they I, think that that's a rewarding experience for me? Like, we, <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on what bugs us as podcast yeah. hosts. That would also yeah. <laughs> we could definitely fill an hour of that. Uh, but but now, having been on the other side of it, I'm a little sympathetic because I, you kind of assume that if you've written a book, you, you can just explain your ideas in an interview. But the way you explain something in two minutes is very different from the way you explain it in, you know, 10,000 words. Uh, and, and it actually does take some effort and practice to be able to summarize the ideas quickly. Uh, so that's, that's been a learning process for me. Okay. See, I haven't written a book, so I've never been interviewed about a book. So maybe I should. <laughs> well, when more... you do, you can let me know how easy or hard you find it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm actually pretty good about um summarizing things succinctly so i think i'll be fine but okay yeah well i have confidence in you <laughs> i think it's justified is it social confidence or epistemic confidence i i, I have I, I i have reasonably high epistemic confidence that you will be able to speak concisely about your hypothetical future book all right awesome <laughs> okay so i uh obviously uh, another thing i want to talk to you about is science fiction oh I'm yes a big science fiction fan and so um in, in part of the book, you're talking about these different tests you can do. So like the outsider test, the status yeah. quo bias test, the conformity test. And um, you talk about doing thought experiments. Mm-hmm. And um, you say um, thought experiments only work if you actually do them. So don't simply formulate a verbal question for yourself. Mm-hmm. Conjure up the counterfactual world, place yourself in it, and observe your reaction. Yeah. And that sounds a lot to me like writing or reading a science fiction story. Yeah, that's... um. It's a great point, actually, and this is this is something that I came to appreciate more about science fiction years ago. Uh, I, the background is I used to have these debates with people like ten years ago about whether you could learn anything from fiction, and because this is a thing people would often say, like you know, oh, you can really learn a lot about human nature, about the world from reading fiction, good fiction, and I I, I would always object to that and say like, no, you you're not you can't learn anything. You're just learning about whatever the author wants you to believe, like the author can create whatever story they want with whatever lesson or takeaway they want you to take from it. But that's not based in reality. That's just based in fiction. Uh, And then one thing that changed my mind was someone pointed out that uh, a lot of fiction, especially science fiction can function as a a thought experiment where you, you know, uh, what's a good example? Uh, I think, Oh, I do have a good example from science fiction. Frankenstein. Um, Frankenstein is a great example of a thought experiment because the Frankenstein's monster uh, learns, he's seeking the answer to why he exists. Why was I even created? And he finds out that he was created, um, you know, by a scientist who was kind of running this experiment. And it's uh, it's not a satisfying answer for him. Uh, in, In fact, it's kind of disillusioning and um and upsetting and i think i think that is a is a valuable thought experiment for us humans because 
so many of us have, we have the sense that if we just, if we understood why we were here, then that would give us, that would be satisfying. It would give us a sense of clarity or purpose in life or something. And, and so I think putting ourselves in the role of Frankenstein's monster and, and imagining finding out that we were created for this, you know, this other outside purpose um, that maybe is unrelated to our own wants and goals as an individual um, and noticing how unsatisfying that is, I think tells us something about, uh, about our own quest for, for understanding our purpose in this world. That's as best as I can explain it. Sorry hmm. if that was unclear. No, that's cool. And Frankenstein is a great novel. If people haven't read it, it's uh, you know it's much different from the the movies. Yeah, um, you know, much more philosophical. I thought so. Yeah. Um, but I could give you an, an example from the book I have here. Is that um, from your book? Mm-hmm. Is that people will say, "Oh, we shouldn't extend the human lifespan." Oh, because yeah. it would cause all these problems, you know, like there'd be overcrowding and people wouldn't, like young people have to ha- have space to, you know, drive the destiny of society and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And you say, well, so wait, what about this? Imagine that the lifespan was naturally double what it is now. Would you think in, in that hypothetical situation, would you think it was a good thing that something came along and halved it back exactly. to what it is now? And I think it's pretty clear from that example, not. But that is that is like a science fiction scenario. You know, that's that, right. That's that whole right. Thing. Yeah, that, that's a much more direct example <laughs> than, than my <laughs> attempts to uh, explain the story of Frankenstein. Um, yeah. So the this this thought experiment is a test for status quo bias, which is essentially the it, it's one possible uh, cause of soldier mindset. It's uh, based on the desire to defend whatever happens to be the status quo irrespective of whether it's actually good or, you know, better than the alternatives, you're just motivated to defend it because it's the status quo. And so this often comes up in discussions over life extension research, um, or I claim it's it's in play in discussions of life extension research, where uh, some people will argue, no, it's actually good that the human lifespan is only about 85 years. Even if we could find a way to extend that you know, 10 or 20 years or more, we shouldn't um, because, and then they have various reasons for why that would be bad. Like, well, uh, if we lived longer, we would get bored or, oh, well, if we lived longer, you know, the pace of change in society would be too slow because, you know, society changes, social mores and and new innovations uh, change by older generations dying out and new generations getting to take their place in society. And so we need people to die off in order for that process to happen. And all of these justifications kind of sound good, maybe. Um, but to to test to see whether your motivation to defend the current lifespan is maybe partly the result of status quo bias, you can imagine that 85 years lifespan was not actually the status quo and that instead the status quo was, you know, uh, 170 years. Uh, would you then feel like it was a good thing if that lifespan was cut in half down to 85 by some genetic mutation or something, would you say, yes, excellent, now society <laughs> will start to change faster? Or will you say, no, this is such a tragedy uh, that we used to get to live 170 years, now we're only living 85 years? And so I think flipping that around can really change your intuitions about you know, which lifespan is preferable to which one. And it's just interesting that you know, in theory, that shouldn't matter like which one you imagine is the status quo, and yet in practice, it does. And I think that's telling. Yeah. And so then another one I want to uh, just throw out here is you say that if, you, um, if you're if you trying to make a decision about, you know, should I change my life or something, mm-hmm. you should imagine that what if somebody else who's not you magically found themselves in your body? Would they stay in your job? Would they, exactly. you know, whatever? And, and that's another kind of obviously science fictional scenario yeah. that you can use to, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I think that's um, I think that's in 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 fact uh, sometimes this this kind of thought experiment is called the teleporting alien thought experiment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember who came up with that. I, I've seen it described that way, where you know if you're in some situation, you're you're trying to make some life decision, like should I, you know, quit grad school? I've 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 been doing this program for four years, but I'm not sure I want to continue. Should I quit or should I stay? Or you know, trying to decide if you should hire or fire someone or like, yeah, hire or fire someone or pivot your business. Um, And, you know, it can be really hard to think clearly and objectively about those decisions because they're just so tied up with all of these things like, you know, oh, am I, 
like I don't want to have to admit to myself that I made a mistake or I don't want to um, I hate the idea of those those years being wasted even if I'm no longer happy with this path, etc. And and so the thought experiment is, is to imagine an alien just teleported into your body, <laughs> into your position, and is now finding themselves in your life uh, faced with these decisions, but but without all of the baggage that you have, without all of that you know e- emotional baggage from the fact that you've been doing this for years. Uh, and so the alien is just asking themselves, well, all right, here I am. I, I, I'm faced with the decision now of, you know, two more years of grad school um, in exchange for this degree or switching to do something else, which seems better to me. And so imagining how this alien in your position would choose or how the choice would seem to them, I think can be a good way to to kind of strip away all of that baggage and see just what seems like the best thing to do in the situation, setting aside the fact that it's me. Well, it's interesting you use that example of quitting grad school because you say in the book, um, my path to this book began in 2009 after I quit graduate school. Right, right, yeah. So did you, you did you use that um, thought experiment to make that decision? I don't remember, honestly. Uh, I, I certainly have used it in other situations. I don't remember if I actually used it in the grad school case. It might have been it might have been just clear enough to me <laughs> that I didn't want to be in academia at that point that I didn't need a thought experiment to tell me. Is it possible that you're an actual alien who transported into Julia's body? Some people have accused me of being <laughs> inhuman, so <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you if I was, though. Okay, yeah, it's, that's probably safer that way. <laughs> um, well, actually, speaking of aliens, um, you uh, talk a lot in this book about Mr. Spock. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, and you actually like did this sort of quantitative analysis of Mr. Spock. So tell us about that. Yeah. Some people might feel like I'm picking on Spock too much, but, uh, but I stand by it. So, uh, so Spock in, in the Star Trek TV shows and and movies, he's held up as this kind of exemplar of logic and reason and rationality. And, and he's set up in my opinion as almost a, uh, a weak caricature, a straw man of, reason and rationality because he, he keeps making all these dumb mistakes. <laughs> um, and, and that's kind of the show's way of proving that, aha, logic and reason and rationality aren't actually all that great. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that he does that's supposed to be emblematic of rationality is he makes all of these very precise predictions uh, as if he's kind of calculating odds in his head. Like, uh, Captain, there's, I by my estimates, there's a... Uh, 86.34 chance <laughs> that we will crash on this planet or whatever. Uh, and, and so I was just curious, how often is Spock actually right? Um, how often do these confident, precise predictions actually translate into, um, into accuracy? And so I went through all of the uh, Star Trek episodes and movies, all of the transcripts that I could find, and I searched for any instance in which Spock is is using the words odds or probability or chance or you know definitely or probably or et cetera a percentage. I had a list of like twenty words I was looking for, um, and I cataloged all instances in which Spock made a prediction and that prediction either came true or didn't. And I found I think twenty three or twenty four such instances, and and so I was able to actually uh, chart. Spock's uh, calibration, it's called. So calibration, mm-hmm. is, it's a, a measure of sort of how, whether your your confidence actually tracks with your accuracy. So if you say you're 90% confident about things, are you in fact 90% or right 90% of the time? If you say you're 60% confident, are you right about those things 60% of the time? And so Spock's calibration is, spoiler alert, terrible. Uh, it's He's in fact for the most part, anti-correlated with reality. So the more confident he says he is that something will happen, like that the ship will crash or that they will find survivors, the less likely it is to happen. And the less confident he is in something, the more likely it is to happen, (laughs) with few exceptions. Um, And so, you know, I I hate picking on people in general, but because Spock kind of presents himself in Star Trek as this paragon of logic and reason and rationality, I, I thought it was justified to point out that actually um, it's kind of the reverse. 
Yeah, well, just to, to give you this specific example, when Spock thinks something is impossible, it happens 83% of the time. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the most striking <laughs> examples of the anti-correlation. Um, that alone should uh, should completely wreck his calibration score. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, I also try to explore why is he so terrible at, at making accurate predictions. And I think one of the key elements is that, you know, we were talking earlier about the value of kind of being curious when the world surprises you. And I was giving the example of, you know, being curious when someone else has a totally different reaction to social situations than I do and, and you know, claims that it's actually good to point out awkwardness. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's good to be curious about those times when the world just contradicts your expectations. And that's not what Spock does. So there's this one episode early on in Star Trek, the original series, where uh, the the Starship Enterprise has crash landed on this alien planet, and the uh, Spock and the crew. I guess Spock is in charge for that mission because Kirk isn't there, and so he's responsible for deciding what to do. And he decides, okay, we're going to scare away the aliens and and uh, prevent them from attacking us by firing a couple warning shots from our ship, and that will that will be the show of superior force, and so they'll flee. And so they fire warning shots and it backfires and the aliens are instead outraged at this um, unjustified or unprompted show of force. And so they attack and end up killing one of the crew members. And uh, McCoy takes Spock to task for this failed prediction uh, and says, you know, oh, so you with your with your logical mind, you um, you were totally wrong and you thought that they would they would react that they would flee. And Spock said, well, they should have fleed. That's the rational thing to do. And of course, McCoy is like, well, but, you know, people aren't, uh, not everyone is rational and, and you should understand that. And Spock just shrugs and says, <laughs> well, you know, it's not my fault uh, that they're behaving unpredictably or irrationally. And that's it. And he's not curious. He, he, he doesn't try to understand why did they not behave the way ex I expected. Um, and, and presumably, you know, he's not a spring chicken. He's seen many other examples, like he's interacted with non-Vulcans before. And so presumably he's had lots of, lots of opportunities to see that actually lots of people don't behave the way he thinks they should. They don't behave the way he thinks they, you know, rationally should behave. And yet he, he fails to learn from those instances of mispredictions mis because instead he just shrugs and says, well, you know, the world didn't behave the way it should have. And so I claim that's exactly the wrong way to behave. If, uh, if you want to actually get better over time at, at, predicting the world. When you say that you went through all the transcripts you could find, like, I don't even know how many of them are available. Like, is it most of them or just like 20%? Yeah. You know, I added that caveat because I, I wasn't immediate. I wasn't confident in the moment that I had found every single transcript. It was certainly most, it might've been all of them. Uh, but I have this vague memory that there were a few that I couldn't track down. So it may not be a complete, but I'd be shocked if the few transcripts <laughs> I couldn't find somehow saved Spock's calibration curve. <laughs> I was just, how long did it take you to tabulate all that, all those results? Uh, a few days uh, of constant work, but it was very fun. It was one of the more fun parts of writing the book. <laughs> yeah, you, and you actually include your chart or like your yeah, yeah, your, exactly. your appendix. Yeah, exactly. And you can, um, you can go through and, and test your own calibration on a, a set of trivia questions to see how you compare to Spock. And hopefully you'll do better. Well, I mean, actually, in our most recent Star Trek um, uh, one of our reviews, I, I actually was, it was the episode we were talking about what we would want to see in a Star Trek series. Uh -huh. I kind of came up with the idea that really want, what I want to see in a Star Trek series is a human who's not that logical joins mm -hmm. a crew of Vulcans. And then the whole series is about him learning to be more logical. So it would be like, you know, like Harry Potter and the methods of rationality, except uh -huh. sort of Star Trek. So just thought I'd throw that. Does that sound, I assume that's something you well, would watch? Well, I mean, except that I don't think the Vulcans actually are that logical. Like, I think it's kind of this false, false logic or false rationality that's, uh, you know, where in which in order to be logical, you have to uh, wait until you have all the information to make a decision or in order to be logical, you have to assume that everyone else is logical. And, and, and both of those things are actually terrible. <laughs> they're, they're very illogical or very irrational. And so I don't know if I would want to see a human learning logic from the Vulcans, because I don't, I don't necessarily think they're the best teachers of it. So maybe that we need to introduce a new alien species, 
who's like actually logical or actually right, rational. right. The the actual Vulcans, <laughs> the that, real that Vulcans, would, right? That would be good. Yeah, yeah, that would, that would be good. Like you could have a Vulcan join the crew of the Super Vulcans, right? And, like have all <laughs> and their... suddenly realize how logical they've been all along. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, I would watch that. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if there's anyone anyone from Paramount listening right now. Yeah. So let's make I'd, that happen. I'd write a draft. Yeah. Have you um have you watched any watched or read any good science fiction lately? Oh, good question. Uh, well, I love Ted Chang. Um I I haven't read him that recently, but he's kind of one of my go-to examples of my favorite science fiction. Um I remember uh, I don't remember the name of the story now, but he has a, a story about um about dr- drastically increasing intelligence um through a drug or something and the way he writes it it's just i he he so well captures what i imagine it would be like to have your intelligence you know multiplied by many orders of magnitude it kind of captures the feeling of how the world would seem different to you and how thinking would feel different to you um so i was really impressed with that and uh and he has another story about time travel that i thought did a really good job of i think it's really hard to write stories about time travel where you don't um you you don't end up uh, in in a paradox basically, and so it's this very impressively internally consistent uh, time travel story, um, yet without being, you know, uh, too obvious or or unsurprising. Is this story of your life? Oh yeah, so these are both short stories from his anthology or collection, stories of your life, exactly. Oh no, but but one of the stories just specifically is called "Story of Your Life." It's the oh. they made it into the movie Arrival. No, that's a different one. Um, that is, I, I like that one too. Uh, actually, that. Oh, are you talking about the? Um, it's like the Alchemist's Gate or yes, something. Yes, exactly. The that's the, the one. Gate. Okay, that's the one. That's the one about time travel. Yeah, I'm a yeah. sucker for any uh, any story about time travel or time loops. In fact, I was just I just posted on Twitter. I I've been playing this game that I, I guess counts as a science fiction game. It's called Elsinore, and you play as Ophelia from Hamlet. And you're stuck in this time loop uh, in which you keep reliving the events of Hamlet, which, you know, again, spoiler, that doesn't end <laughs> well for most of the characters. Uh, and, and so you keep trying to prevent the, all the carnage and make things go differently. Um, and then you keep waking up as yourself uh, on the same morning with all the same knowledge or, or all the accumulated knowledge that you've, you've had over all of the many time loops um, and, you know, so you have another chance to make things go differently. And it's, uh, it's like fun and, and kind of spooky. Like the more you learn about how the time loop works and why you're in the time loop, the creepier it gets, which I love as well. I love time loops and I love creepiness. That sounds really cool. You know, um, yeah. years ago, I interviewed um, Ryan North and he had, he wrote a choose your own adventure oh, book I love about Hamlet. Oh, that's right. I think someone mentioned that when I was talking about Elsinore as a nice companion piece. Yeah, no, I'll check that out. I really because we uh, I really love time loop stories. We actually did a whole episode recently about time loop movies. Like, um, oh, amazing! I have to listen to that. Yeah, so it's like um, you know, Edge of Tomorrow, Groundhog Day. Yep. Um, And I don't know if you know if you saw um, Palm Springs, but it was this really. I loved Palm Springs. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it was okay. It was so good that uh, okay. I have to admit, I watched it. Uh, you know, downloading it from BitTorrent or something, but I loved it so much that I then played it on, was it Netflix that it came out on or Amazon Prime? I forget. Hulu. Hulu. Okay. So I, I, I played it on Hulu just on my computer when I wasn't watching just because I wanted it to get, I, I loved it so much that I wanted my view to have counted towards whatever the official statistics were. So I, I like made sure <laughs> to play it on Hulu uh, to, to, you know, add to the statistics. That's funny, you know, when I watched it, um, uh, you know, Erin Lindsay was on that panel and she wasn't uh-huh. able to watch it because you can't get Hulu in Canada, apparently. Oh, and I didn't so, know that. Huh. so we had to do this thing where I, I put my laptop on the chair in front of the TV and we were on like video, a video call on Skype. Uh-huh. And we, we watched it at the same time. But then I always just watch that TV at night. I don't usually watch it during the day. Yeah. And I didn't realize how much glare there was going to be on the screen oh, uh, too during bad. the day. <laughs> but are there um, any not to make you rehash the episode but are there any time loop uh movies or tv shows that you think are like underrated like uh, underappreciated um 
I mean, so, so this episode was just movies. We did five movies and we're talking about maybe doing a follow-up of TV shows, but I haven't done the viewing for that. I did watch, I mean, I actually, there's actually a list on Wikipedia where it's like 25 different time loop movies. And so I started watching some of those and um, not all of them really fit my definition of a time loop movie, mm. uh, strictly speaking, but some of them were really good. So um, there's one called Triangle. Uh, oh, is that the one on the boat? Yeah, it's, yeah. I actually had to stop watching it because it was too. I like creepiness, but it was it was too scary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but I, I I like the premise a lot. I agree, it fits in this category. And then there was an, another one which um, I can't think of the title, um, but it, it's about these people in a house. They're having like a dinner party, and then um, I think the power goes out. Oh and yeah. And then they they sort of it turns out there's like different versions of them. They've they've somehow like. Don't spoil it for me because I know the one you're talking about and I still haven't watched it. But yes, that one sounds great. There's also a Star Trek episode that's time loop. um, That's a time loop, right? There there are a couple, yeah. Yeah. I think each each series had maybe one or or two. Yeah, Um, I remember liking that. So yeah, I mean, part of the reason that we haven't done that episode yet is I just can't figure, I can't decide how to narrow it down to some actual number of things to watch. I, I wonder if anyone's created a taxonomy of different approaches to the time loop, um, you know, movie or TV episode, like, uh, you know, time time loops that that always repeat at the end of the day versus time loops that repeat when you um, only when you die or time loops that um, uh, where you can get out of them versus time loops where you can't. Oh, maybe my favorite time loop, uh, one of my favorite time loop episodes was actually a short, like, 15 or 30 minute um, uh, TV show. I don't know. It was a one-off um, in which this guy is, is stuck. I think it's called 1215 or something. Um, he's stuck in a 15 minute time loop. Uh, and so he's struggling to find a way to figure out what's happening to him and try to stop it, you know, in just 15 minutes each time. So it's striking and very creepy. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so many, so many ones you could talk about. And I, I guess I'll just say that one with the house, just um, I, I, as I said, I can't remember the title, but it's fantastic. Yeah. And so okay. if, if anyone wants to check it out, just look up that Wikipedia article of time loop movies and you should be able to find it on there. That's what I'm doing as soon as our <laughs> call is over. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to go straight to the Wikipedia on time loop movies. Yeah. Um, one thing I thought was funny in here is you just you note in passing that you thought that the the 1960s Batman with Adam West was intended as a serious show uh-huh. at the time. Okay, I was I was 17 though, so give me like a little slack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I just thought that. Uh, so you know, if you've seen the show, it's very campy. It's it's full of you know, Batman and Robin are these grown men in tights running around saying things like uh, "Holy ravioli, Batman!" or uh, "We could have been killed," or worse. And, and I, I don't know, I was a 17 year old. I thought, I thought that it was, this was what people in the sixties considered serious adventure, uh, a, a serious adventure show, uh, serious drama. And so I just felt very superior to them that, you know, uh, I can see how cheesy this is because I'm sophisticated, but, um, but those people in the sixties were too unsophisticated to know how, how dumb this all is. And and I think I said as much to some people, I, I referenced this, um, you know, how, how unsophisticated people in the 60s were. And then at some point, someone said to me, no, Julia, that it was always intended as camp. <laughs> like everyone watching in the 60s saw it in the same kind of cheeseball way that you saw it. Uh, it's not, this is not particular to you as a sophisticated modern viewer. And And after they explained that, it was kind of obvious to me. And I was kind of shook that I had, that I had assumed that people in the 60s could be so stupid and and that that just didn't seem surprising to me and I didn't question it. Um, So that I brought that example up just as as an example of how I think noticing that you were wrong about something, even if the thing you were wrong about is kind of random or trivial and doesn't seem, you know, all that relevant to important decisions you have to make, I think it's still valuable to notice the things that you were wrong about because there are often general updates that you can make from those, from noticing those errors. And those general updates are, they, they teach you something about how your brain works or, or about how the world works in general, and they can make you a better thinker just in general. And so my update that, huh, I think maybe I have a bias towards assuming that other people are simpletons. <laughs> uh, that's, that's like a useful thing to notice about my, my default psychology that, that 
probably does have applications outside of the particular domain of uh, of Batman and Robin. <laughs> well, I mean, I can I can see that though because so, so often you go back and look at like old TV shows or whatever old movies, and you're like, how could anyone have ever liked this? Like, this is so bad. So yeah, like I was watching Leave It to Beaver, I think <laughs> it was, and it it was kind of it did feel kind of painfully earnest and cheesy uh, to me, but I I still think that that the cheesiness in Batman and Robin is so it's so clearly telegraphed. It's, it's so clearly intentional when you're actually looking at it clearly (laughs) (laughs) that I should have known. I I don't want to give myself a pass for that. Yeah. I mean, you probably hadn't watched that much of the show too, right? Yeah, no, I'd seen a couple episodes. That's true. I appreciate your attempts to excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right. So we're, we're pretty much out of time here. Um, I guess I'll just I'll just read some of the things I really some of the lines that really stuck with me from the book, Um, because there's a lot about, you know, having um, productive arguments and stuff like that. And so two lines that really stuck with me is somebody says, uh, the better your message makes you feel about yourself, the less likely it is that you are convincing anyone else. Mm, Yeah, that was uh, Megan McArdle. And I that line really resonated with me and has stuck with me over the years. It's a hard, hard lesson to learn. Um, and then the other one is, if reading someone, if reading someone's opinions does not make me feel more compassion toward their perspective, then I keep looking. Yep, that's from Kelsey Piper. None of these quotes are actually from me, but I guess I can take credit <laughs> for at least identifying good quotes from other people. Uh, Kelsey Piper is a, a friend of mine and a journalist for Vox's Future Perfect section, and uh, and she was talking about, you know, how to actually listen to people with different opinions in a way that might that has the potential to change your mind. And she was pointing out that you should be looking for people who, uh, who disagree with you, but who you feel, you know, compassionate towards and, or at least um, somewhat sympathetic to, because you, you need some of that common ground to, uh, to have a, a good shot at changing your mind. Yeah, no, I thought that was really good. Cause you know, you know, people might say like, Oh, I want to see what the other side thinks. I'm going to watch Fox news. And then they're mm-hmm. like, this is awful. It reinforces all, all my worst fears. Right. Right. And it's exactly. Like, okay. Well then you're, you need to pick something else. That's right. Know? That's right. That's that. And that is what tends to happen as I found. Yeah. Um, so I know the book, um, is just, it will just have come out or will mm-hmm. just be coming out as when this airs, but have you gotten, um, good feedback or have you been doing other, uh, interviews about it and stuff like that? I have done other interviews and yeah, it's just been so fun to, uh, to get to share some of these ideas and, and have, you know, like stimulating arguments with people who have, who've really engaged with my ideas in the book. And, uh, and so far I, you know, I think all of the, all the disagreement I've gotten has been like really interesting and in good faith and reasonable. And so I, I love having these, you know, arguments about the, the pros and cons of Scout Mindset and it's, uh, it's like value and limitations. And this is all, this is all my dream. <laughs> did those other interviews, did they ask, did they talk about Spock as much as I did? Uh, I talked to Dylan Matthews about Spock. Um, Cause I guess you and Dylan are both nerds in the best <laughs> possible way. <laughs> um, but yeah, that it's definitely one of the sections of the book that I have the most fondness for. So I was happy that you, you both asked about it. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then I also just wanted to mention that um, actually, if you look at Geek's Guide to the Galaxy in iTunes, under mm-hmm. listeners also subscribe to, it lists rationally speaking. So I know that there oh, are nice. some number crossover of crossover fans. fans. Yeah. Excellent. So I just wanted to mention that you have, you've you been putting out new episodes the last few months. So mm-hmm. if um, you know if people um, didn't, know, didn't know that, I just want to mention that Rationally yeah, Speaking you. is putting out new stuff. Thanks so much. Yeah. Rationally Speaking podcast. Come check it out. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. Are there, are there any other um, any other final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Uh, no, I'm. I've. Uh, I, you asked great questions, and I think if if people found this conversation interesting, you should check out the Scout Mindset. Um, you can buy it on Amazon or from the Penguin Random House website. Uh, and uh, well, I also have a YouTube channel, um, so you can just search for Julia Galef on YouTube, or I think it's YouTube.com/slash Measure of Doubt. Uh, so I'll, I'll also put out videos about these topics uh, from time to time as well. All right, cool. Yeah, so let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Julia Galef. And again, the new book, it's called The Scout Mindset. So Julia, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. This was so fun. Thanks, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Julia Galef for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue... 
Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.